0: I'm here to talk to you about evangelism. And the reason for that is not because I thought it would be a good idea. It's because when Jesus summed up his mission on the last week of his life, it sounded like this. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And when Jesus talked about what heaven celebrates, he said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people that don't need to. And when the priests were infuriated that Jesus was walking around acting like he was a rabbi without having the credentials of a rabbi, he explained himself like this, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I could keep going on like this, but my assumption is you get the point. The lost were and are the priority of Jesus. And I find it helpful that Jesus uses the term lost to talk about people outside of relationship with him. Lost. Like searching for a home but looking around and everything looks unfamiliar. Lost like that nervous feeling that frantically runs around inside of me until I finally see something that feels familiar again, and then I'm blanketed in relief. That's what Jesus describes living life outside of relationship with him to be like. And the lost were and are the priority of Jesus. And that's why we can sit in a room couple thousand years later and talk about this thing called evangelism. And if, when that word comes out of my mouth, a chill runs down your spine, you should know that you're not entirely alone there. I want to share a couple studies with you I ran across. Uh, There's a group called Barna that does research on the church in this country, and they polled over 2,000 people and, and put out an article called, Is Evangelism Going Out of Style?" And here's what they discovered, that 100% of Christians agree with the statement, I personally have a responsibility to tell other people about my beliefs. And yet only 69% of those same people said yes to this. During the last 12 months, I've explained my beliefs to someone who had different beliefs in hopes that they might accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So there's a gap of over 30% between what we say we believe and then how we actually go about living our lives. And everywhere you look in the church today, there's this widening gap that keeps expanding between practice and belief when it comes to this thing called evangelism. And that's because we are torn between two realities. One is the priority of Jesus. There's all those things I was saying before. See, evangelism was at the very heart of Jesus' mission. We know this. The problem isn't a lack of awareness. The problem is awareness. The problem is that when I try to express that same priority, it comes out looking like this. Can we go to the next slide? Nope, the next one. There we go. (laughs) Right? Evangelism always comes out of us looking like this. It feels like advertising. Like product placement. Like, I'm supposed to do a commercial for Jesus, but in such a subtle way that this other person doesn't know that what they're actually watching is a commercial. And I think so many of us often feel like, look, Jesus, if you wanted me to do your advertising for you, that's fine. I just wish you had been up front about that as part of the deal. It feels kind of like you baited me in with all this grace stuff, and then you put me on your PR team once I was already in the door. And that just doesn't sit right. Right? I, I don't want to be a coercive person peddling the product of Jesus because I've had a very sincere, even a life-changing encounter with God. And when you carry around a story like that, that then try to push that on other people in some like 90-second snippet sort of way that you can get across between stops on the subway, it often feels like I'm cheapening this thing that has totally reformed me from within, not giving it away to dignify another person. My faith is sincere, right? My life is devoted. My story is a real one. But my attempts to share that faith often cheapen it. So, the central priority of Jesus, when it's lived out by really well-meaning Christians like so many of us, often comes out looking like a normalized or a privatized faith. Some in this room normalize Jesus you've bought into this idea that you're doing God a favor by making Him seem as normal as possible. As if God is in heaven like, you're killing it down there. (laughs) They can barely even tell. (laughs) See, you can be a Christian and be completely normal, and so many of us are doing our very best to prove it. But I also wonder if we have elevated appearing normal above Christ-like love. And others of us, we privatize Jesus because we live in a culture that is mostly intolerant of evangelism, right like a city like Brooklyn is spiritually curious but but religiously suspicious, and so oftentimes it can be like, "Look, you just do your thing and I'll do mine we can I'll believe what I believe, but I will respectfully take that off with me into the private sector, and we live this compartmentalized uh, existence where Jesus is very much a part of my story when I'm around people that speak the language, and I more or less try to keep that part of my story away from any environment that doesn't speak the language. You want to convert me? Maybe even worse than that is, you want me to want to convert these other people? No, 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 no. And so many of us, we've been perfecting this careful dance of never being thought less of for following Jesus. Jesus, who said, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. That is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So if your primary concern is following Jesus in a way that costs you socially nothing, Jesus says you are in the wrong company. So many of us we have this normal private powerless faith. Right? We avoid discomfort but maybe we also avoid risk and trust. We correct the very worst Chris, Christian misconceptions we want to stay away from, but we also avoid the very best kind of spiritual fruit. We are thoughtful and we're well, well-rounded, but we're also almost never surprised by God. And so at this point, I would imagine that half of you just kind of want to tune me out and get to lunch, and the other half of you are ready to like grit your teeth, get back out there, and try harder, right? Right? But neither of those is the correct response because there's something deeper going on than just a lack of motivation within us. So let me get to the second study that Barna did and share a few more stats with you. 96% of millennial Christians, that's my generation, say part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Great start, right? 96%. That's pretty good. 94% 94% went on to say the best thing that can ever happen to someone else is that they come to know Jesus. In other words, the most loving thing I could ever do is introduce someone else to Jesus so that they could experience the life that is truly life. Now, 86% went even a step further than that and said, when someone raises questions about faith, I know how to respond. Look, don't worry about me. I'm glad you came here for these other people. Don't worry about me in an evangelistic situation. I can handle myself. I can handle myself in a moment like that, right? Right? took it a step further than that, I'm gifted at sharing my faith with other people. Invite someone to church so they can hear Edwin go on and on and on. No, 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 no. Bring your friends to me. Right? 73% of people, and yet despite all of that, 47% of people say it's wrong to share your beliefs with someone who has different beliefs. What? What? how can half the people who say the most loving thing I could ever do is introduce someone to Jesus also say, but it's kind of rude to introduce someone to Jesus. See, the church is filled with evangelists in theory, but relativists in practice. We are torn and confused and utterly paralyzed when it comes to the topic of sharing our faith. And the tragic misconception that so many of us carry around related to evangelism is driven by this subtle lie that we live with. It goes something like this. God shows up when I show up. Or if I were to say that another way, God starts pursuing that friend of mine when I awkwardly breach the Jesus topic with that friend of mine. And that could not be further from the truth. So several years ago, uh, I met a guy named Mike because he was sitting in a sea of empty chairs in the middle of my church. He had arrived 15 minutes early to our service, and I know it's different here, but at my church, you arrive 15 minutes late at best to the service. So he's the only one there, and it was his first time ever stepping inside a church building. He was a couple years sober. He had one of those backstories that it feels like you can't really tell in a room like this, and yet he wears it like a badge of honor in, in different rooms, and He had made a New Year's resolution. This was the first Sunday in January of 2016. He had made a New Year's resolution to get a little bit more personal about his higher power. And so he had made a list of faith communities of all different kinds around Brooklyn, and he was going to visit them one after the other. And we were his first stop because we happened to be the nearest church to his house. And he never made it to any of those other stops. He was intrigued by the story at first and then through continuing to explore Jesus and open himself up to prayer and the people that he met there, he eventually had this life-changing encounter with the grace of God that's totally turned his world upside down. He's a completely new person. And I got a front row seat to all of that. And Mike's story has been one that has sustained me as a pastor more than almost anything else. And... A year later, he walked into our church one Sunday and he handed me his three-year chip. And he said, I would not have made it this last year without this community, thank you. And I still keep that in my desk to this day. And yet when he handed it to me, I just heard this whisper of God ask me a question. Tyler, where were you when I started all of that? And I kind of went back in my mind. And I thought, okay, New Year's Day 2016, Mike's making a New Year's resolution that leads him in this collision course with Jesus. Where was I? I was out of town visiting my parents. I was not sending emails, making plans, driving church initiatives. I was not inviting people out there on the streets, loving people into the kingdom. I was eating stale Christmas cookies and binge-watching Netflix. I was resting And I just heard God say, I don't show up when you show up. I don't start working when you start working. I keep working while you're resting. This thing called evangelism, it's not taking Jesus where Jesus isn't. It's going with Jesus where he's already going anyway. You're just invited to come along with him. This is why in Psalm 127 it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So evangelism is not an obligation that's laid on you a couple weeks after saying yes to Jesus. It's an invitation that you're given daily again and again and again. God doesn't show up when I show up. God shows up full stop in any and every corner. God shows up and he invites me to go along with him as a way of just saying, hey, why don't you come and see this with me? Why don't you come and take a look? So it is not my responsibility to take God where God is needed. It's God's responsibility to take me where he's already going. We cringe at the thought of this evangelism thing because we've bought into the illusion that somewhere along the way the Son of Man stopped seeking and saving the lost and now asked me to do it instead. But that just is not the case. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says these famous words, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into the harvest field. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never asks us to pray that the harvest would be plentiful? Jesus never asks us to pray that there would be a crop that needs to be harvested. That part is just totally guaranteed. Remember, this is the priority of Jesus. He is the one who came to seek and save the lost. He is the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go pursuing the one. He's the doctor that doesn't take appointments but goes looking for the sick. God's pursuit is never in question. And yet, how many times have you heard well-meaning Christians pray that God would bring a harvest? Here's God's answer to that prayer. I've heard, I'm doing it. Open up your eyes and look. Pray instead that you would see. Not that there would be a harvest, but that you would notice it. And if you read this story, Jesus actually says this while he and the disciples are passing through the city of Samaria. Samaria. Now, Samaria was this city full of people that the Jews believed were too far gone. Like, they were far outside of the reach of God. They had everything wrong. That's what all of them thought. And so while they're passing the city that's too far gone to even consider, Jesus says, look, even now, these fields are ripe for harvest. Pray that people would see it and go to reap what I'm doing. And then revival breaks out in the city of Samaria. Samaria. So Samaria for the disciples is your workplace. We're like, yeah. If you pushed me, of course I believe that God loves my coworkers and is pursuing them, wants to be in relationship with them. But do you ever show up there with an active anticipation and expectation for God to break in in the middle of your workday? It's your apartment building, right? Uh, what would happen to your neighbors if Jesus lived in your apartment? What happens to your neighbors because you live in your apartment? Because I would guess that you walk into a room like this one with more expectation for God than you walk into the building that you've got keys to in your pocket. And yet God promises to be equally present in both places. See, we still assume that God's more active in certain environments than he is in others. And Jesus is saying, just pray that you'd see. Pray that you'd see the best stories of your life are waiting on the other side of you trusting that I'm going where I promise to be going. I'm in your workplace. I'm among your friends. I'm in your home. I'm where you drop your kids off at school. I'm always just one step ahead of you. Just pray that you'd see. So evangelism, we're not talking about taking God where God is needed. We're talking about going where God is already going. And when this priority, when it gets expressed through the lives of different people, it comes out looking all different ways. Right? Evangelism can look like boldness, it can look like prayer, it can look like friendship, it can look like listening, it can look like honesty, but it always involves invitation. There's always an element of inviting someone else. And so that's what I want to hone in on, is invitation. We cannot follow Jesus and ignore the imperative of invitation. So my favorite evangelistic moment in the whole of the Bible happens in John chapter 1. Let me read this story to you. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is how Nathanael responds to all that. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. That's how Nathanael went from mocking to one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. Like the inner circle of the greatest movement in human history. One of the twelve that got to befriend, walk around with, sleep next to, hang out with God in the form of a person. How do you get into a group that exclusive? Here's how. Come and see. Come and see. It's that simple. It is just invitation. There's a guy named Joseph Noss who wrote a biography called Straight Pepper Diet. And uh, the last chapter ends with him walking out of this meeting in downtown L.A. And and he's headed to a car and he sees this other guy that he didn't recognize from the meeting walking a few steps ahead of him on the sidewalk. And he stops him and he says, hey man, uh, are you going this way too? And he says, yeah, I am. And he says, oh, where are you heading? There's a bus stop just a couple blocks down. Oh, well, I'm actually parked right here. Could I give you a ride home? So this guy gets in the car, and he quickly discovers it's this guy's first ever recovery meeting. The only reason he's there is because his lawyer advised that to get a couple meetings under his belt would look pretty good for the judge while they're begging for mercy, and he's got several DUIs. And so he spends the whole ride home with Joseph, this new guy, immediately lights up a cigarette in his car with all the windows rolled up, And then spends the whole time complaining to Joseph about how difficult it is to navigate the court system. Now what he doesn't know is Joseph has just been released from prison. Joseph is also on week one of trying to quit smoking. So he's sitting there in the driver's seat, you know, battling these cravings like crazy, but resisting the urge to call him out for being rude. He's got a story that could easily one-up this guy's like minor court situation, but he resists the urge to tell his story, and he just listens. He just listens the whole way as they're driving home. And then finally, this guy's going on and on about how like he wasn't really feeling the whole meeting thing. And he gets why it works for some people. He's just not one of those people. And he doesn't really need a community like this. He doesn't have a problem and, and so on and so forth. And they finally pull up in front of the guy's house and Joseph speaks for the first time the entire car ride and just says, hey man, I'm making a meeting again tomorrow. Same time, same place. Can I pick you up? And he says, yeah. And that's how it happens. That's how someone finds a community that loves them, supports them, frees them, listens to them, and then celebrates them. The 12-step community, so many of you will know this, it is an absolute phenom. Like even in a city like Brooklyn, you will struggle to find a church sanctuary that's full on a Sunday morning, but you will find every church basement in our city packed every day of the week with people there for recovery meetings. And the 12-step community is such a wonder that medical professionals still can't figure out how it works, but statistically it is the best way to get free from addiction. So how do you become a part of a community of healing so profound that it doesn't fit into our medical categories? Come and see. Come and see. Hey, I I hear everything you're saying. I'm going in tomorrow. Can I pick you up? Can you just come and see? In fact, inspired by that story, which is based on biblical truth, the the 12 steps go on to say that you can't find freedom unless you go to spend that freedom on other people, right? My wholeness is tied to sharing all of it with everybody else. You can't be made whole if you don't then spend your wholeness on others. And in the church, we love to remember the glory days of the early church. We love to talk about the ways that they loved one another and shared meals together and and shared their finances to pay off each other's debts and opened up their homes to one another day and night. But the early church was actually known for two things. One is how great they loved one another. But the other is how invitational they were to the lost The early church was by definition the most evangelistic community that has ever existed on the face of the earth. So that a few hundred years uh, of after Jesus' death and resurrection, the greatest statistical revolution on human, uh, human history occurred. And it included people of different races, different classes, different cultures, different languages. The early church transcended every category that should have boxed it in. And what was the way into such a profound community like that one? It was this. Come and see. It was the simplicity of invitation. Invitation that stretched beyond the dividing lines that should have chopped up the society. Just come and see. So let me take this from theory and just try to bring it a little bit closer for us, okay? Based on all of the research that I have been able to accumulate, the percentage of Williamsburg, Brooklyn residents, the neighborhood that I live in, that attend any Christian church of any kind, Catholic, Catholic, Protestant, evangelical, orthodox, non-denominational, anything under the banner of Jesus. Put it all together and it makes up 1% of the population of that neighborhood. 1%. So I'm guessing it can't be that different in whatever neighborhood you live in in the same city. Right? Jesus talks about leaving the 99 to go after the 1. The mission in Brooklyn is more like leaving the 1 to go after the 99. So here's a question worth asking: are how? Are you an invitational people? Like in an honest description of the core personality traits of this community, would invitation top the list? Are we leaving the, or are we content to enjoy the company of the one while the 99 walk around lost? Because Jesus never tells us to pray that God would pursue the lost. He tells us to pray that we would notice and come with him. Have we stopped going with Jesus? The most common way God draws people into his family is this. It is experiencing the gathered community of his followers. Which if you are introverted, even a little bit, you should be like, Whoo. <laughs> Tyler, man, I thought you were going to have us passing out pamphlets on the subway. This is a massive relief. It's just inviting? Great. But can I tell you something that is infinitely more uncomfortable than you reaching out to a friend of yours to invite them into this community? It's that same friend of yours showing up uninvited. That's so much harder. Only love cares enough to see that. Only love cares enough to make the first move. And only love can sustain this evangelism thing. Inspiration fades, willpower will wear off. Love, simple, humble love for the other. That's the only thing that sustains us to reach out and reach out and reach out. Come and see, come and see, come and see. So if you were to ask me, Tyler, what is the one thing I could do that would most accelerate my spiritual growth? I would say, oh, that's so easy. Just invite a friend into this church community, sit next to them, and then have lunch with them afterwards and ask them about their experience. That's not the most comfortable thing you could do to grow spiritually, but it's definitely the thing that would accelerate your spiritual growth the most. And that's because you would pray for them and you'd really need God to respond. You would see the story that you grounded your life in again freshly through the perspective of an outsider. You would love someone selflessly and you would discover what it feels like to live like Jesus lived through giving away that kind of love. The best stories of this church, the ones that will define who you are, the ones that will sustain you through difficult times are waiting on the other side of the simple thing of invitation. Just come and see. Can I bring this a little bit closer? Yeah? Okay. Luke 15, Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So here's what heaven celebrates when the lost are found. Just in case you didn't get it, three verses later, Jesus says it again. In the same way, I tell you, there's more rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now be really honest with yourself. In the last year, how many people have you personally invited into this community? How many Sundays have you sat here extra nervous because someone sat next to you that you had risked a friendship on? How many times have you dismissed yourself from bringing in the outsider without even talking to Jesus about it? Would you, in an honest description of the core of your own personality, describe yourself as an invitational person? Or maybe the Jesus way of asking that question goes something like this. Are you living a life over which heaven is celebrating? Or a life over which heaven is silent? Now let me bring this as close as I can. I got into a conversation a couple years ago with this uh, Jehovah's Witness that was passing out brochures at the entrance to McCarran Park. And I was just asking her questions about her life and how she ended up doing that. And here's what I learned from her, that she had been standing at the same corner of the same park all day, every Saturday, for 30 years. I'm 32. So that's roughly the amount of time I've been breathing. Now, don't get me wrong, I do disagree with her message. I think the pamphlets she's passing out are manipulative and they lead people in the wrong direction. I also disagree with her methods. I don't really think giving someone a sheet of paper is the best way to spread something that transforms your whole life. But I am challenged by her commitment because it far exceeds my own. And I think one of the traps for the church in a city like New York is that we can easily convince ourselves that the fight of our lives is just about our faith surviving this place, right? And it's like Jesus has done everything he can to say, you are the dangerous ones. Right? You are the ones who have your feet firmly planted in the only kingdom that lasts. You are the ones whose truest identity is hidden away in a place that it can never be taken. You're the ones who are victorious, walking around in a world that is losing. The victory already been won. The future is secure. You can't lose. You're the dangerous ones. And I completely believe That God chose to pop you into His story in the skin that you have on, with the personality that you have, born into the family you were born in, in the place that you were born, with the interests that you carry, because you're the best person God ever designed to reach the people that are around you right now. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the passion of Jesus. It's not about advertising. This is the passion of Jesus. So we'll land here. Um, This guy named Tony Campolo, who's a college professor and a well-known pastor, and he opens one of his books uh, telling the true story about a speaking engagement that he once took in Honolulu, Hawaii. So he takes a flight from Ohio, where he lives, all the way to Honolulu, and then he wakes up the first morning there at 2.30 a.m. because he's super jet-lagged. His body doesn't know what time it is. So he wakes up in this hotel room. It's 2.30 in the morning, and he is so hungry. Like his stomach is rumbling. And so he gets out of bed. This is way before Google Maps or cell phones. So he gets out of bed and he just starts wandering the streets of the city looking for a place that's open where he can get something to eat. And he eventually finds this 24-hour diner. And he walks into this diner and he sits down right at the counter. He's the only person in the whole place. And he orders with the cook. He starts talking to the cook. And a couple minutes later, it's just that you know, it's one of those doors with the ring comes open and this group of eight or nine prostitutes walks in and they all pack into this one booth together and they are laughing hysterically like they're talking so loud they're in one of those moods you know where everything is funny and so they're they're like laughing and talking and and they're they're so loud he can't help he's not really eavesdropping he just can't help but listen to everything they're saying he's the only other person in the diner and then eventually one of them says I'm going to be 39 tomorrow and the girl across from her goes, what do you want us to do, throw you a party? And they all kind of, you know, start laughing and stuff. And she says, I've never had a birthday party in my life. I don't know why anyone would start now. And then they, he sits there eating until they leave. And then as he's sipping his coffee, he says to the cook again, he says, hey, do they come in here every night? The cook says, every night, 3.30 a.m. on the dot. It's like clockwork. He says, and that one who said she's going to be 39, do you know her name? Oh, yeah, that's Agnes. She's been coming in here for years. Okay, I've got an idea. What if we threw a surprise birthday party in in here for her tomorrow? He's like, look, I'll cover all the expenses. I'll come in early. I'll set up decorations around the whole place. I'll I'll even pay for a cake if you'll cook the cake. And he's like, why not? So the, the next night, Campolo shows up at the same diner, and he like gets there early, and he walks in thinking he's about to decorate the place by himself. And there are over 25 pimps and prostitutes already waiting in the diner for him to arrive because the cook is connected, and he spread the word, right? And, and so, so they just start they start decorating this place, like filling with everything, and then. They all hide away and, and those eight or nine walk in again right at 3.30 in the morning. It's the door opening and everyone jumps out, surprise, and they are so shocked. And then everyone just bursts into singing happy birthday over Agnes. And when they, they walk her, as they're singing it to a stool that they've got a cake with 39 candles in it burning set up. And they walk her and she can barely move. She's in such shock, like her knees being weak. And she sat down at the stool in front of this cake. And they finish singing happy birthday. And there's so much celebration in the room. And then she just begins to weep. And she says, look, I know everyone's supposed to have a piece." but I've never had a birthday cake before. I just want to take this home and put it in my freezer so I can keep it. Is that all right? And they say, yeah, but also the, the vibe just swings from like high celebration, everyone's laughing, to deeply moved. And no one really knows what to say next. And so Campolo says a prayer. That's what you do as a pastor when you don't know what to do next. You just go with a prayer. Just watch that pattern. There's a class on it in seminary. Go with a prayer. Um, But he says this prayer, and as soon as he says amen, the cook gets angry and he says, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And he says, I belong to the church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. That's what it was always supposed to be. So whatever's gotten stuck to Jesus as a result of people that have used His name for the wrong thing in the many years since He came and showed us what God is like, you've got to know that this is who He really is. He is the one who threw parties for prostitutes in the middle of the night and parties for tax collectors in the light of day. And in His name, a community was formed. And that community is for sex workers that are sobering up over coffee and eggs and it's for the pimps that are selling their bodies and it's for the diner cook who's just trying to earn a few bucks and it's even for the preacher who thinks he's got it all figured out by now. It is for you. It is even for you. And it's also for your most annoying coworker and the neighbor that lives upstairs. And it's for the the person that you've known way too long to take them seriously. And you've seen them go through a thousand phases. It's for the homeless guy that sleeps on your block every night. It's for the mom that you always chat with at the playground. It's for your roommate's new boyfriend who never leaves the apartment. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. And when I say evangelism, it's that kind of party I have in mind. So whatever may have gotten stuck to this word as a result of your experience, you've got, can can we be the people that recover what it was when Jesus had his hands on it? Can we be the church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning, that invites in those who are most forgotten, that think a room like this one or a community like the one you have is for anyone except for you? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, and He's never stopped. And He never will stop. So let's not stop going with Him. Will we stand, and, and then I'll pray for us. Edwin, why don't you come on up and lead us. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I, I wanna pray I don't want anyone to leave this room with any guilt on their shoulders that they should be doing this or they should be doing that. I also don't want anyone to leave this room inspired and gritting their teeth. What we want is we want your love to deepen in us so that there's nothing we could do except give it away. We don't want to advertise for you, God, but we do want to go with you everywhere you're going. And so I want to pray, God, that this would be a community that that is not bound in by their comfort zone. But I want to pray this would be a come-and-see kind of church. One that is known for invitation. And I want to pray, God, that if there's anyone in this room that is in the position of Agnes, that has no idea that there is a God of such great love, that there is a surprise party waiting on them, on the other side of His grace, that you would just absolutely wash them with your love even now. That they would know that the story is not just a good one, but it's a true one and it's a living one. And that they would know that the God who leaves the 99 to come after the one is pursuing even them. Maybe especially them. In Jesus' name we pray.